My name is Shinya Murase, and I'm professor of international law at Sofia University in Tokyo. Today, I'll be speaking on the legal nature of unilateral measures in international law. The topic may be a bit controversial, but I think the phenomena are too important to ignore, since the resort to unilateral measures is quite prevalent in today's international relations. I think I should first remind you of the distinction between uh, unilateral acts and the unilateral measures. A unilateral act is a juridical act whose conditions and legal effects are clearly defined in the established rules of international law, whether by customary law or treaty law. An example of a unilateral act under customary international law is the institution of recognition of a new state. The conditions and effects of the recognition are defined in the customary international law by which not only the recognized states but also the recognizing state become bound. Thus a unilateral act is merely an act of application of the pre-existing international law which, which has of course been established by the consent of states. Another example of unilateral act is a unilateral submission of a dispute to the International Court of Justice in accordance with the optional clause provided in Article 36, Paragraph 2 of the ICJ Statute. Though unilateral in nature, such, such an act is a simple applica application of a treaty clause embodying the pre-existing consent of states. By contrast, a unilateral measure is an action of a state taken under its domestic law for which there is no clearly established rule of international law. It is often difficult to determine whether such actions were legal or illegal due to the ambiguity of the applicable law, and the International Court of Justice has rendered judgments that actions were opposable or non-opposable rather than legal or illegal in such cases. In international law, we are often confronted with certain areas where the black and white type of determination is not possible or appropriate. The normative gray area should be properly addressed in juridical terms. And for this purpose, I believe that the concept of opposability is useful. So this is a normative framework that I employ in my lecture today. Let me give you concrete examples of universal measures and explain how they are viewed in international law. As you are aware, the, the law of the sea is the area of international law which was undergoing a significant change during the latter half of the, of the 20th century. When the applicable law was ambiguous or emerging, the International Court of Justice ha had to employ the concept of opposability rather than legality. The first such case was the fisheries case of 1951 between the United Kingdom and Norway. In this case, the court stated in its judgment that the 10-mile rule for the baseline of the mouth of a bay, I quote, has not acquired the authority of the general rule of international law, unquote. And that, I quote, in any event, the 10-mile rule would appear to be inopposable as against Norway, inasmuch as she has always opposed to any attempts to apply it to the Norwegian coast. The court has also referred to, to the straight baseline drawn up by Norway under its decrees of 1869 and 1889, 
for its territorial waters, which in its, in its opinion would be opposable to the United Kingdom, stating that, I, I quote, the notoriety of the, of the states, the general tolerance of international community, Great Britain's position in the North Sea, her own interest in the question, and her prolonged abstention would in, in any way warrant Norway's uh, enforcement of, of her system against the United Kingdom." Unquote. This was the first case that the court employed the notion opposability in its decision. It is important to note in this connection that the rule of, on baseline for bays and territorial waters was already a controversial topic when the fisheries case was, was before the court, as revealed in the debates at the early, early sessions of the International Law Commission. The, the, the efforts of the commission, as you know, culminated in the 1955 Geneva Convention on the Territorial Sea. What was called opposable uh, by the court in 1951 became legal under the 1958 convention. <coughs> a most typical opposability disputes dispute was brought to the that was brought to the International Court of Justice was a fisheries jurisdiction case of 1974. The case was concerned with Iceland's unilateral extension of its fishing zone to 50 miles, which had been taken in, in accordance with, the, with its domestic regulation issued in 1972. While Iceland had agreed with the United Kingdom through exchange, exchange of notes regarding 12 mile fisheries zone in 1961, Iceland proceeded to enforce the new, new zone against the British vessels. It is interesting to note that while the first submission of the dispute by the United Kingdom in 1972 asked the court to hold that Iceland's extension was ipso jure illegal and therefore invalid erga omnes. The second and third submissions made by the United Kingdom in 1974 apparently modified the claim by specifically challenging Iceland's, Iceland's rights to assert an exclusive fisheries jurisdiction as against the United States, as against the United Kingdom. Thus, the court found in its judgment of 25th July 1974 that it was bound to conclude, I quote, bound to conclude that Iceland's regulations of 14 July 1972 um, on the exclusive fisheries jurisdiction extending to uh, 50 nautical mi miles are not opposable to the United Kingdom, I unquote. In other words, the court reached no, no conclusion regarding the United Kingdom's initial position that the extension was illegal. Rather, the courts held only that the measures in question were not opposable to the United Kingdom. While such a judgment was inevitable in, in view of the fact that while the case was pending before the court, some countries were already beginning to assert 200-mile exclusive economic zone. Apparently, the applicable law was undergoing a significant change at the time. What was opposable or non-opposable in 1974 
became a legal institution under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1982. In light of these ICJ cases, a striking contrast is evident in comparing ordinary disputes regarding legality and those concerning opposability when considered from the perspective of the normative situation of the applicable law. Also characteristic of the character characteristics of the opposability disputes are the nature of the causes of action and the normative effect of the measures taken. In disputes regarding legality, a court is asked to determine whether the action of the defendant state is violative of a rule or rules of international law in a black and white manner. Normally, the plaintiff state asks the court to find the other party to have been wrongful and therefore invokes state responsibility. The final goal of the plaintiff is to acquire appropriate remedies ex post facto for the wrongs done by the defendant state. In disputes concerning opposability by contrast, the court is, uh, is asked to determine in the gray zone of normativity the external effect of the measures taken by the defendant state vis-a-vis -vis the plaintiff state. Such actions do not address the issue of state responsibility. For example, in the 1962 case of the Temple of Prayer Bihar between Cambodia and Thailand, while the court did point out that some of the temple's objects had been removed by the Thai authorities, the question on restitution had not been raised on which a judgment by the court would be required. While the court did not employ the term opposability explicitly in its judgment, it held that the question regarding the ownership of the, of the objects would be considered in, in, the light, in light of the legal effect of the, of the fact that the area surrounding the temple was under the sovereignty of Cambodia, and left the question of restri restitution to be solved by negotiation between the parties. Well, the same is true with the court's reference in the 1980 uh, hostage case to the, to the failed rescue operation by the United States. The court criticized this use of force as having under, undermined respect for judicial process. However, the court never considered this action from the viewpoint of illegality and responsibility, but rather evalu evaluated it as a matter of non-opposability. Well, I'll come back to this point uh, a bit later. The difference between disputes uh, regarding legality and those concerning opposability is also clear in terms of the scope of the normative effect of the measures in question. When the court renders a decision regarding legality, its finding is decisive and it, its effect virtually ergo-ominous in spite of the you know, limitations stipulated in Article 59 of the ICJ statute. By contrast, the effect of a decision on opposability is relative in the sense that it is limited to the particular relationship of states. Recall in both fisheries and fisheries jurisdiction cases, the court was addressing the effect of, of the measures in question, either by Norway or Iceland vis-a-vis -vis only the United Kingdom. 
In other words, the relevant determination only apply with respect to the particular factual situation that those parties have brought to the tribunal for resolution. Having defined the concept of opposability, we now move on to the question of how certain unilateral measures can be deemed as opposable or non-opposable. The components of opposability are, in my view, effectiveness and legitimacy. First, unilateral measures must be effective in order to be opposable. In the course of the, uh, the Cold War, which preceded the fisheries jurisdiction case of 1974, Britain sent a naval fleet to the disputed area to protect its fishing boats from interference by Iceland's Coast Guard patrol boats, which were cutting the nets of the British fishing vessels. To success successfully assert the opposability of the measures in question, or to block the measures so that they become non-opposable, a state must exert certain power while this power needs, need not to be of a military character, and in fact it is generally desirable that it is not be in the form of military power, nonetheless some exercise of power is necessary, whether economic or diplomatic. The unilateral measures must be self-sustaining since they are by, by definition undertaken in the gray area of normativity and therefore devoid, devoid of any protection of law. However, opposability is not a conce concept which justifies power politics or gunboat diplomacy. And therefore, to be opposable, the unilateral measures in question must be supported by legitimacy. The measures must conform to a sense of equity and the general interest of the international community rather than to the special interests of a particular state or, or group of states. The legitimizing process is crucial in assessing opposability of, for the measures being undertaken. And in this process, the concept of equity plays an important role. Whereas effectiveness and legitimacy are objective elements of opposability, the principle of good faith in the conduct of the party is very important as the subjective uh, standard in evaluating whether the measures in question can be considered opposable. Because the con concept under consideration is uh, relevant to the particular relationships of the, of the countries concerned. The state resorting to uh, unilateral measures must show that having exhausted all available means in good faith, it simply had no other choice but to apply a unilateral measure under under the imminent circumstances existing at the time. Similarly, the targeted state's conduct also comes under scrutiny. For instance, in the context of the UK-Iceland dispute of the fisheries jurisdiction, the conduct of both countries is questioned. The, did Britain act in good faith with Iceland incorporating to conserve codfish resources? Did Iceland try trying good faith every possible alternative means before resorting to the unilateral extension of its maritime jurisdiction and enforcing it by force. The principle of good, good faith might have been merely a moral principle until some decades ago, but today it has become substantially institutionalized through judicial decisions of the, of the ICJ. 
the requirement of, of good faith negotiations is particularly important in assessing opposability. Well, I have, I have so far referred to the relevant case, cases in the law of the sea where the concept of opposability was employed. And I could go on, I could go on enumerating similar cases in various other fields of international law, such as international economic law, international environmental law, etc. Well, for lack of time, however, I have to skip them today, but I would like to ask you to read my papers, which I have listed in, in the bibliography of my uh, outline. For the latter half of my, of my lecture today, I'd like to focus on the unilateral, unilateral measures involving the use of military and police forces that might be considered opposable to the targeted state. I know this is a bit controversial. Nonetheless, I believe that it is important for lawyers to have a proper framework for juridical assessment of actual situations concerning the use of force, and that the concept of opposability can contribute to clarifying them, clarifying them in juridical terms. I will take up here the case of the NATO's, NATO's air campaign during the Kosovo crisis in 1999. So let us consider the actions by NATO, that is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It is not the purpose of my lecture today to either justify or condemn those unilateral actions, but rather I will try to offer a frame of reference which I think is appropriate for the legal evaluation of such actions. I believe that these actions offer good example, examples whose legal effects should be characterized in terms of opposability rather than legality. I came to this idea of opposability when I was reading comments on the NATO actions in the Kosovo crisis in 1999. I was a bit dissatisfied with some international lawyers in Europe and the United States who maintained the NATO, NATO's actions were somehow, I quote, illegal but justified, unquote, or, I quote, unlawful but necessary, unquote. Those who believe that the actions were simply illegal would not have any, any worry. By contrast, those who feel obliged to respond to the external humanitarian situations are faced with the most difficult dilemma of conflicting dictates between law and mora morality. I agree that this latter position is perhaps mo a more responsible one than simply saying that the actions were illegal without demonstrating effective alternative solutions for the then ongoing atrocities. I believe, however, that the necessity and, and justification for the measures taken by, by, by NATO should have been given in legal terms and not simply in terms of extra-legal or moral grounds when one winds faced with a question in the position of a professional international lawyer. Naturally, any legal revelation should be distinguished from the appraisals of political processes. Mixing law with politics would be a fatal mistake for a pro professional international lawyer. However, I believe that this is very important for us to have a methodological framework which fac facilitates the proper legal analysis of political realities in international relations.
if one limits the role of international law to the narrowly defined province of legality, I'm afraid that the result is the marginalization of the function of international law as a tool to regulate conduct of, of states. Frankly, I feel such an attitude would, be, would not be appropriate for those involved professionally in international law. And I believe that we should try to establish a certain normative relevance to the actual relations of states. It is from this perspective that I propose to incorporate the concept of opposability into the usual criteria for the determination of legality or illegality in our debates on unilateral measures. There was no prior Security Council authorization for the NATO actions under Chapter 7, nor under Article 53 of the Charter, which would have, which would have been given to a regional arrangement or agency when the military action was deemed necessary by the Security Council. The NATO itself has clearly declared that it is not such a regional arrangement or agency uh, envisaged under Article 53. The NATO is an organization based on the right of collective self-defense under Article 51 of the Charter. But in this case, the right of self-defense could not be invoked because there have been no armed, armed attack by Yugoslavia on the NATO countries. I share the view held by many that the NATO's airstrikes were not compatible with UN Charter provisions, particularly its Article 2.4. We all know that there has been debate regarding the interpretation of Article 2.4 over, over whether the use of all force is prohibited or whether certain exceptions are permitted. In particular, regarding humanitarian intervention or suppression of international terrorism, some people take the position that unilateral forcible measures may be permissible depending on the situation, on the purpose, and, and on the purpose, form, and scale of, of the action. Some of those who try to justify unilateral actions also rely on a theory of implied authorization. Well, it is more than obvious that the Charter requires explicit authorization adopted by an affirmative vote of nine members, including, of course, the concurrent votes of the permanent members. Security Council Resolution 1199 stated that it would consider further action and additional measures beyond the economic san sanctions which had been imposed, earlier imposed on Yugoslavia. The Council was still short of authorizing the use of force against it. Thus, as long as we consider the UN Charter to be our applicable law, no matter how broadly or strictly we try to interpret relevant provisions, at the very least, large-scale uses of force carried out without expi explicit authorization of the Security Council could not be considered acceptable under an interpretation of the Charter. However, the point I would like to take, take up is this. What meaning is there in emphasizing this kind of charter violation in such a case as Kosovo? My position is that in such a case, the UN Charter is not properly maintained. 
as exclusive applicable law, and therefore the application of general international law, international law should be considered. I believe that the Security Council is stalled in resolving the conflict, and we are faced with a situation where the measures ordered by the Security Council have not been fulfilled. Then the function of Chapter 7 must, must be deemed inoperative. As a result, Lex Specialis cease to function, and Lex Generalis, generalis come, comes back into effect. In my view, a shift of applicable law from the UN Charter to general international law takes place in such a, in such a situation. Let us first look, look into some precedents which bear, which bear out this argument. In fact, a shift of applicable law can be recognized in several precedents. For example, the Korean War began in 1950 in the form of, of application of the Charter as an enforcement action of the UN. Although there was some irregularity caused by the absence of the Soviet Union from the Security Council. Then, with the return of the Soviet Union to the Security Council in August 1950, the Council's activities were paralyzed. And beginning in January 1951, the issue of Korea was removed from the Security Council's agenda. The conflict ended with an armistice agreement concluded in 1953 under the system of general international law following well-known processes. The General Assembly at the time merely welcomed the truce and recommended that the Korean question should be settled by a political conference of the member states contributing to the forces rather than the UN itself. This can only be interpreted as an expression by the UN of its intention to withdraw from the involvement in Korean situation. Thus, the Korean conflict, which began as an application of the UN Charter, was concluded under the system of general international law. The hostage case in Tehran can also be considered from, the, from this viewpoint. Immediately after the crisis began in no November 1979, the Security Council passed a unanimous resolution calling for the release of the hostages. At the end of December, uh, it, it again demanded the immediate release of the hostages. The Security Council decided to reconvene and take effective measures based on Chapter 7 of the UN Charter if its most recent demand was not, demand was not met within a week. However, the U.S. proposal of economic sanctions against Iran was vetoed by the Soviet Union. Subsequent mediation attempts by the UN and other organizations failed, and the hostages remained captive. At the end of its role, uh, the U.S. attempted its own hostage rescue operation in April 1980. As I mentioned a little earlier, the International Court of Justice criticized this use of force by the U.S. as having undermined respect for judicial process. However, the court never considered this action from the viewpoint of illegality and responsibility, but rather evaluated it as a matter of opposability. And in effect, the court appeared to consider the problem on the basis of general international law rather than the UN Charter. 
Another case we can view in the slide is the Falkland Malvinas dispute of 1982. The Security Council recognized Argentina's military invasion of the Falklands as a breach of peace and demanded the immediate withdrawal of the Argentine uh, army. However, Argentina refused to comply, and subsequent mediation attempts by the U.S. Secretary General, the U.S. and others, all proved unsuccessful. As a result of this turn of events, the UN, UN Charter took a backseat to the applicable law, and, and a battle was fought in the form of the military clash under general international law. In the end, the matter was resolved when the UK forcibly took back the islands. I know, this was, uh, I know it was the position of the British government that this was the exercise of the right of self-defense on the part of the United Kingdom. But even so, it seems that the right of self-defense in this case was based on general international law rather than Article 51 of the Charter due to the Security Council's inaction. The shift, shift of applicable law from the UN Charter to general international law sh should not be linked simply and unconditionally to the inability of the Security Council to function due to the use of veto power. Rather, the shift, this shift should be recognized only when the, the following set of conditions are met. First, the Security Council determine, determines that certain incident is a situation of falling under Chapter 7 by referring to breach, peace, etc., specified in, the in that chapter. Second, the Council orders the aggressor state to take specific measures, for example, the cessation of hostilities or, or um, withdrawal of, uh, of the army unit. And third, the Security Council is unable to secure compliance with the conditions that it has demanded. In other words, this is a situation where the, there was a serious disconnect or mismatch between the Security Council mandates and the means to effectively enforce them. It should be admitted that the principle of non-use of force of Article 2.4 is inherently linked to the effective functioning of Chapter 7. It is natural to think that the reason that the state accepts the prohibition of the use of force to begin with is because collective security functions effectively, and that if worst comes to worst, the state's own security is guaranteed through this collective security system. In such circumstances, Chapter 7 may be deemed unenforceable or inoperative, thereby its application being suspended and thus the legal evaluation of, of the actions taken by the, by the injured state or other related states to restore the original status quo should be performed under general international law rather than under the UN Charter. Now, coming back to the NATO action of a Kosovo crisis, this action can be seen, in my view, as a unilateral forcible measures taken by a group of states and as such must be regarded as having opposability vis-à-vis -vis the then uh, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. As I mentioned, the concept of opposability becomes relevant when the content of applicable law is not yet clearly established. 
the response to large-scale human rights violations within, country, within the country's borders, as in, in the Kosovo crisis, is a typical example of a situation where the relevant rules of international law has not yet been clearly established. We could, of course, say that the primary substantive rules stating that human rights violations are actions that violate international law are quite well developed. But this is not the case with secondary international, international law rules regarding procedure and mechanism for enforcement that should be used to handle such grave violations. The development of such secondary rules is not yet complete. In this kind of ambiguous normative situation, I believe that the actions against Yugoslavia should at least be recognized as being opposable human, humanitarian measures. At this point, let us review the component elements of opposability. The objective elements necessary to comprise opposability are effectiveness and legitimacy, as I mentioned. Effectiveness refers to the factors of power needed to guarantee realization of a measures in question. If a measure is not implemented effectively, it is non-opposable. The measure in question must, be, must also be supported by legitimacy and must conform to the general interest of, it, of the international community in a manner that outweighs the special interest of a particular state or group of states. The NATO, NATO actions appear to have been fully in accordance with this uh, effectiveness require, requirement due to NATO's overwhelming military power. As to legitimacy, NATO had the strong support of the international community, including the G8 summit, OSCE, and the so-called Rambouillet process. Security Council Resolution 1160 and its subsequent resolutions also support the legitimacy of the actions, which can be assessed here from the, from the viewpoint of general international law. As I mentioned, the principle of uh, good faith is very important as the subjective standard in evalu evaluating whether the measures in question can be considered opposable under an imminent, imminent situation in which there are no available alternatives. I believe that the, the efforts made by the NATO countries in this regard should also be assessed positively. Thus, the NATO actions can be considered opposable as measures undertaken to prevent further deterioration of the situation, while no effective measures were forthcoming from the Security Council. Measures based on opposability are provisional and transitional by nature, and their legal effect is in principle limited to particularized relations between the states concerned. Therefore, the clear and early authorization of these measures by a competent, competent organization must occur. The opposability of the NATO air attacks was confirmed and legalized ex, ex post facto by Security Council Resolution 1244. It can be viewed that this resolution, if read in context, recognized in effect the factual situation created by the NATO actions and laid the foundation for an international peace presence in Kosovo comprised primarily, on, primarily of NATO troops. 
clearly inertial measures are, as a general rule, undesirable. However, it is largely because of structural defects in the international system, including the UN system, that unilateral measures are prevalent in the present-day world. The ineffectiveness of institutions in responding to crises creates a situation ripe for unilateral actions. It is interesting to note that the first paragraph of Resolution 1244 quoted the Chair's statement from the G8 Foreign Ministers' meeting of May 1999, noting that the political settlement of Kosovo crisis should be based on that statement, especially because the G8 includes Germany and Japan. Citation of the G8 summit in, in the resolution speaks to the inability of the current Security Council system to adequately deal with the security of the present-day international community. In this sense, I believe that the reform of the Security Council is the most pressing task of all. Some unilateral measures are opposable, while others are not. Opposability is assess assessed according to the normative criteria criteria of effectiveness and legitimacy. To be opposable, the action, action taken should meet international standards for dis disciplined behavior, and all unilateral actions must ultimately meet the tests of international, international lawfulness. Opposability is thus a useful concept in differentiating between cases of permissible and non-permissible unilater unilateral measures. Needless to say, uh, no use of force is, is desirable. However, I believe that there are exceptional circumstances in which the unilater unilateral use of force is not only permitted, but also required in order to prevent the worst conceivable situations from taking place. Under such circumstances, we as international lawyers cannot and should not merely say that actions were illegal but legitimate. I believe that we should try to make every effort to accommodate the ethical considerations of legitimacy as well as the normative elements reflecting, reflecting the actual power relations into the province of international law. Thank you for your kind attention.